Well, I want to welcome you to Crossroads Live. My name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church, and I'm so glad that you are joining us wherever you are joining us from. I'm excited for these next 50, 60 minutes together where we're going to go to God's Word, where we're going to take communion together, where we're going to sing in response to the way that God is working in our life and the goodness uh, that we have in Him. If you are brand new with us, man, welcome uh, to Crossroads Church. I am glad that you are here. And while this might be your first time, I hope it's not your last. In fact, my my prayer is, is that over the next 50, 60 minutes as we worship our Savior Jesus, that it would inspire you to join us again uh, next week. If you've been around for the last couple of weeks, then you know that we are in this sermon series where we're walking through the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke is just one of the four accounts of Jesus' life. And so if you have your Bibles today, I would love for you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 6. If you don't own a Bible or don't have a Bible, don't worry, we'll have it on the screen uh, for you. But we're going through this series on Luke. And really, the whole premise of this series is to investigate uh, really the life of Jesus. And the reason that we're doing that is because when it comes to, to most people, they may know a few stories, Bible stories about Jesus, but when it comes to really knowing the story of Jesus, if I hard pressed you into that, a lot of people struggle with that. And so if I was to like ask you the question, like what makes Jesus so significant? How would you answer that? Or why is it that, that thousands of people traveled from hundreds of miles to, to hear him teach? Why was that? Or why is it that we have these remarkable stories in the scriptures that, that tell us about him? Like, what is it to truly know Jesus? That's an important question. It's an important question because that's why we're all here. Whether you're a longtime church person or this is your first time at church, that every single one of us, every single one of us wants to know what does it truly look like to know Jesus so that we can decide for ourselves if Jesus is really God or if, he's, if he really cares for us and loves us the way, the way that it says he does or, or for us to be able to decide whether he's worth following or not. And the best way to answer any of those questions, in my opinion, is to simply to look at the life of Jesus and to lean in, again, whether you're first time at church or a long time per church person, to just simply lean in and find out who Jesus is and what he was all about. And so if you were here last week, we got this series started by looking at Luke chapter 6 and diving into one of Jesus' most popular sermons that he ever gave called the Sermon on the Plains. And as we saw last week, it's not just a teaching, but, but these were teachings that Jesus gave all the time, and really what it became for him was the manifesto, his manifesto, on what, it, on what it truly means to experience human flourishing in this life now. And so as we dive in today, Jesus is going to reveal to us the one thing, the one thing that he values more than anything else. That is healthy, loving relationships. Healthy, loving relationships. And this teaching today, as, as we dive in, let me just tell you, it has the potential to dramatically change the trajectory of this world and to heal our communities. And if you're someone who's paid attention these last six months or so, heck, if you've just been alive these last few months, then you know how much healing we need in our communities. And if we just get a taste of this, I mean, just a small taste of what Jesus is teaching today, it will absolutely ruin us in the best possible way. And so if you're get ready to get wrecked, let's get to it. Luke chapter 6, we're jumping in right into the middle of Jesus' sermon in verse, uh, verse 27. Here's what Jesus says. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. 
And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We read this teaching and almost immediately we... (laughs) You're like, what really is going on here? And so to set the scene for you, I want you to imagine that you are living in the time of Jesus, that you're living in the days of Jesus, and that your occupation is as a fisherman, that you fish for a living, that day by day, night by night, you go out, you cast your nets, and you catch fish. And on one particular night, that as you're out fishing, you start to pull in your nets in the morning, and this is like the mother load, like this is the big one. And you're pulling in fish all over the place. And you can't believe how many fish you've actually caught during the night. You get your ship back to shore. You load up your donkey carriage with all of the fish. And you start heading on the road home, dreaming about what you can do with the money that you're going to make from all of these fish. How this catch is going to be the one that sets you forward in your life. And as you come over the hill heading to home, you you see the tax collecting booth before you. And your dream all of a sudden is, is awakened to the reality that you don't actually have enough money to pay for all the fish. Like that's the way the system works. Like, like you were taxed before you actually made the money off the fish. And all of a sudden you realize that, that you have two options. One is to dump the fish that you can't afford. Or two, try to negotiate with the tax collector and see if he won't let you through. You decide your best option is to go and try to negotiate with the tax collector. And so you get to the booth, and you go up to the tax collector, and it's it's your turn, and you look at him, and you say, man, like last night was the most remarkable night. Like I caught more fish than I've ever caught in my entire life. But man, I'm so sorry. I, I don't actually have the money to pay for all of these fish, to pay taxes on all of these fish. Like, it would be really great if you just gave me some time, and, and I'll come back, and, and I'll pay it. But, but I just need some time to sell all these fish. And the tax collector stands up, looks you in the eye without saying anything, and slaps you right across the face. Like, in that moment, how do you respond? Now, there's something to us, right, Americans? Like, like there's something in us that goes, man, I'm going to rise up, and I'm taking that guy out. But not in this time, not in this day. Right, just right around the, the tax collector booth is Roman soldiers. And to strike a Roman soldier, to strike a tax collector is like striking Caesar himself. And that those Roman soldiers, they will put you down in a moment without even blinking. What do you do? How do you respond in that moment? That's the scene that Jesus sets for us. He uses a couple of examples in, in the regular Jewish life of places that they, would, that they would encounter hardship, where they would be hurt, where they would be humiliated, where they would have enemies. Now, when most of us read this teaching of Jesus, we think that Jesus is looking at us and saying, just roll over, do it, submit, let people walk all over you. And historically, that's the, been the way that this teaching has been interpreted. But Jesus' command here, Jesus' command here is, is when you are wronged, your response is not to do nothing. Actually, far from it. That what Jesus says is that when you come up against something in your life where hardship comes, what Jesus says what you're to do is what the original language calls agape. Here for us, it's translated love. That when you're wronged in this world, Jesus says your response is not passiveness. That rather, your response is to show active love, to agape. Now, 
When Jesus said all this, love your enemies, do good to those who hurt you, if you think that it's radical in our day, like you have no idea how radical it was in Jesus' day. It was extremely radical, extremely countercultural to the way that society works. See, in Jesus' time, there was this huge debate that raged between the rabbis and the religious leaders and the people of Israel that centered around Leviticus chapter 19. Now, Leviticus is one of our favorite books in the Bible, right? Like, in Leviticus chapter 19, you have Moses, like the big daddy of the Old Testament, and he's writing what we call God's laws. He's writing the rules for the Israelites, for the Jews, on how they are to live. And Leviticus chapter 9 is all about concerning loving your neighbor. And the great debate was really is who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? And the reason that this was, was such a huge debate and the reason that they worked so hard at knowing or debating who their neighbor was is because according to the law, they had to love their neighbor. But when it came to everyone else, the law was pretty gray. It was pretty gray. In fact, over time, the way that this command was interpreted by the rabbis and the religious leaders was like this, that you are to love your neighbors and you are to hate your enemies. Now, if you pick up your Bibles and you read Leviticus chapter 19, you won't actually see that phrase anywhere. The only phrase that you'll see is where Moses writes that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, that's a phrase that we see Jesus use time and time again in his own life, in his own ministry, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this debate raged. When it came to the Pharisees, they would ask the question, who is your neighbor? Well, if you read the greater context of Leviticus chapter 19, you see phrases like this, that you shall not go around slandering your people that you shall not hate your brother, that you shall not hold a grudge or take vengeance against the sons of your people. And so for most rabbis, they saw what you hear. They heard the word your, 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 your. And so the way that they started to interpret this is that your neighbor is your people. And so for the Jewish person, the Jewish people were their neighbors. So Roman soldiers, they didn't count. And tax collectors who were, who were Jewish but became enemies, they became traitors by working for Rome. Like they didn't count either that you could hate those guys. Now, I bring you into all of this, not just because it's interesting history, of which it is, but because the reality is, is that the Jewish people had been under occupation for some 600 years. Cruel, relentless, harsh kings and emperors forcing their will on the Jewish people. And so if you've been living under that kind of occupation for the last 600 years, this is an important question, isn't it? Like, God, what are you asking me to do here? Like, who really is my neighbor? Who do I have to love as myself? If you're living under the cruel, harsh occupation, that's an important question. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he takes this passage of Leviticus chapter 19, something that the people and the teachers knew, knew so well. They think that they understand it, and they got it like under wraps, like they got it under control, and he expands it into something that absolutely wrecks them. 
He looks at them and he says, Leviticus chapter 19 isn't just about who you're supposed to love and who you're allowed to hate. That Leviticus 19 is an upside down kingdom ethic that sees no boundaries when it comes to love. That Jesus in this moment settles the debates. And he says, if you're one of my disciples or you want to become one of my disciples, then you are to love your neighbor and your enemies. And he uses the word agape, which in English we translate love. Now, when it comes to our English understanding of love, we're all over the place, aren't we? That English, when it comes to love, has that we use it so casually that it doesn't really mean anything in our culture, or it has several meanings in our culture. For example, sometimes we use love to say that I have deep affection for someone. Like if I was to say, I love my wife, Sarah, what I mean by that is that I have deep affection for my wife. But other times when it comes to love, we, we use it to express joy, don't we? Like I could say, I love Star Wars, which means that when I sit down and watch the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda and Darksabers, like my heart is exploding with joy. Like I love Star Wars. But other times in our English language, we use love to describe preference, don't we? Like I could say that I love Chick-fil-A, which means that I prefer Chick-fil-A over about every other restaurant on the entire planet. See, love seems, uh, means so much in our English culture that sometimes it doesn't mean anything at all. And actually, when we're talking about love, generally speaking, that love is defined as a feeling that happens to you. It's like rainbows and unicorns and kittens. It's the, it's the warm fuzzies that we get inside. And so we come to a, a passage like this, where Jesus says that we're to love our enemies. And we go, Jesus, is, is that what you're saying for us to do here? To have warm fuzzies for those who have abused you? To have warm fuzzies for those who, who hate you, who have hurt you, who have caused harm to you, who have left you, who have stolen from you? Or is it that our broad view of love in the English language is actually getting in the way of us understanding truly what Jesus is saying to us? And the answer, or to answer that question, is really to understand agape. That agape is, is an ancient Greek work, word, and it wasn't defined so much as like an emotion, as much as it was defined as an attitude that led to action. So let's put it in the context of, of God. That God chooses to see people as loved, as, as beloved. And it leads to, to mercy and kindness and generosity in our lives. In this way, this attitude that, that God chooses to see people isn't based on whether you like God or don't like God. It's not based on, on whether God approves or disapproves of, of your behaviors. That God chooses to agape you and it leads to radical mercy, radical generosity in your life. Now, I can imagine that for some of you, you're sitting and, and you're kind of debating this in your head and you're going, well, well, Matt, I don't know that I'm buying what you're selling. Like, I'm not sure that that's, like, that's an accurate understanding. So let me just tell you the way that Jesus said it. That one day Jesus is out and he says this. He says, does not God, does not God cause the sun to rise on the righteous and the evil? Like, in other words, 
is the blessing of the sun that comes from God, the warmth that we get from it, the life that springs forth. Is that, is that just for the righteous? Is that just for those who, who love God? Is that just for those who follow God? Is, is that who the blessing of the sun is for? To which every single one of us would go, no. Like the blessing of sun is for, is for everybody. And Jesus goes, exactly. And does not the rain that falls from the sky, is it not for the just and the unjust to which we would go? Of course, it's, it's for everybody. It's for everyone. See, what Jesus is saying is that God chooses to look at every single person in a certain way. That he chooses to look upon every single person with dignity. People made in the image of God, creatures in the image of God, carrying the image of God, and as such, as such, he chooses to view them as loved, as loved. Now, of course, they're going to screw up. They're going to mess up. They're, they're going to do some terrible things. But God is going to choose time and time again to agape them on their behalf. And Jesus turns that around on his disciples and those who want to be his disciples. And he looks at them and, and he says to them, in God's kingdom, you don't have the right. I don't have the right. We don't have the authority. We do not have the authority to treat someone as unloved when our heavenly father treats them as loved. And almost immediately we go, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Like, Jesus, if you knew my story, you wouldn't say that. Like, if you knew my story. Because what if your story is devastating? Because just last week you found out that your wife cheated on you. And you're writhing in, in pain and, and emotional agony. And to say that you have to do good to her, I mean, how cruel is that? Because of the emotion that you're living in right now. Or maybe your best friend. Maybe your best friend lied to you. Or lied about you. Or maybe there was a person in your life, someone you trusted, a Christian or a hero, and they turned out to be not like they said they were. In fact, they were, they were pretty much pretending the entire time you knew them. Or what if someone owed you some money and they never paid it back and left you in a hard, hard situation? Maybe someone took advantage of you and used you for your benefit. Maybe, and unfortunately, for many of you, there's someone who should have loved you, who should have protected you. And instead of loving and protecting you, they hurt you. And we step back and we go, God, I'll pray for them. Jesus, I'll pray for them. I'll pray for my enemies. And we go all Psalm 109 on them. It's like, God, like, like take everything they have. Send the looters. Like, seize everything. Let no one be kind. Blot them from the earth. There, Jesus, I prayed for my enemies. Amen. And Jesus, knowing the struggle that we would have in this moment with this teaching, so beautifully begins these words to us in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful 
and the evil. Jesus says, look, even sinners. And when Jesus uses that term sinners, he's not talking about like, like those who, who have no sin. Like all of us have sinned. He's talking about those who are far away from him, for those who, who don't believe in him, for those who are not following him. That's, that's who Jesus is calling sinners here. And he goes, isn't this true? I mean, as you look at the world, isn't this true? That, that even sinners love those who love them? And he says, as you look at the world, don't, don't sinners lend to those who are going to pay them back? And don't even sinners do good to those who do good to them? Jesus goes, when you look at the world, people are pretty good at this agape thing with people who are in their circle, in their family, in their sphere of influence. Jesus says nobody has a problem with agape with the people that they like. That's not the issue, is it? That Jesus turns it on us and he goes, the issue for us, the real issue, is that we love the people in our group and we hate the people outside of our group. And Jesus goes, when it comes to this kingdom ethic, it's upside down from all of the way that society thinks. And Jesus looks at the church. He looks at his disciples and those wanting to become his disciples. And he says, look, the things that we value are not the things that society values, that you value what your heavenly father values. And just in case you're still missing what that looks like, your heavenly father is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. And then Jesus gives us this command. He goes, here's the expectation. Here's the new kingdom ethic of agape to which we're to live by. Verse 36. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. To which collectively we go, not a chance. Like, what else do you have, Jesus? Like, I won't, I can't. I mean, even if I tried, I would never live up to that. What else you got? Now, certainly this is a command, but it's also a promise here for us that there's something here that Jesus says, when you or I step over some relational divide and choose to agape as an attitude that finds its action in radical, concrete mercy to those outside our circle, those who hate you, and let's be honest, those who we're not very fond of either, when we go against the grain of every intuition that we have as fallen humans and choose mercy, compassion, benevolence, Jesus says you are never more like God. You are never more like your heavenly father than you are in that moment right there. In that moment right there. That there's something about love. Not the rainbow, kittens, unicorn kind of love, but agape. When we choose to treat all people with dignity, regardless of their behavior, regardless of what they've done to you, regardless of what they've done to others, and do a concrete act of mercy toward them. When disciples do this, it's like we're participating, Jesus says, in the very heartbeat of God. When Jesus' disciples do this, not only is it like we're participating in the heartbeat of God, but actually we're living in the flourishing that God has for us, not just that later, but right now right now. And Jesus' early disciples, they got this. They got this. One of Jesus' closest friends, his name was John. We call him the Apostle John. And decades later, we're talking 40, 50 years later, he sits down and he writes these words. In this is love, agape. 
Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And he has sent his son to be atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God has agaped us, shouldn't we, ought we, agape one another? See, there's just something to this agape being lived out in mercy that sums up what it means to be human. And it's the hardest thing. It's the hardest thing that we'll ever do. And yet it is also the most important thing. And when we begin to grab this, the world changes. I mean, when Jesus lived this out, acted in agape, through the action of radical mercy on the cross, the world changed. When his disciples understood this and started to live this out, the world changed. And so the question is, how does this become practical for us? Like, what does it mean to live out this teaching? How do we become a catalyst for mercy in this world that ultimately has the potential to change the trajectory of this world and to heal our communities? Well, number one, to show mercy, we must know mercy. It's this teaching that I think inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words in Romans chapter 5. That God has shown his agape for us. That while we were still yet sinners, that Jesus took the, uh, the, the merciful action and died for us on the cross. And if we as enemies are reconciled in Jesus' death, how much more are we saved by his life? See, that's the why. As a Christian, this is the issue for us. Only people who have received radical mercy have any motivation to show other people mercy. If you haven't experienced mercy, this level of compassion that Jesus is calling us to will never make sense. In fact, if you're a person who, who does not understand this level of mercy, the significance of, of a Savior's agape, lived out in mercy towards you, then not only will this not make any sense, but you will actually hold it away from you your entire life. It's something that you'll resist your whole life. The only thing that makes sense out of mercy is for those of us who are people who have been shown radical mercy in our life. To know mercy, to show mercy, we have to know mercy. The second thing is to show mercy, we start with forgiveness. Now, when it comes to forgiveness, forgiveness is simply this. It's making the decision that the person who has hurt me does not owe me anymore. Forgiveness is, is I've decided, despite what you've done, maybe how you've ruined my family, how you've wrecked my future, whatever it might be, that I have decided that you don't owe me anymore. I'm not going to hold your sin against you. I'm not going to hold it over your head. I'm not going to condemn you for it. You don't owe me anymore. Because Christ has loved me and forgiven me, I'm going to forgive you. Now, anytime we talk about forgiveness, we got to understand that, that when we forgive, it doesn't mean there won't be consequences. We just simply let God handle those. It doesn't imply that, that there will ever be trust between you and that person again. There, there may not ever be trust again. 
It doesn't mean that, that we just put all this behind us and now it's rainbows and kittens. It doesn't mean that we'll become friends. We may never become friends again. It just simply means that I've made a decision that you don't owe me any more. I'm letting this go. God can deal with your heart. God can deal with your sin. I forgive you. You don't owe me anymore. Pastor David Willis says this about forgiveness. He says, holding a grudge doesn't make you strong. It simply makes you bitter. And forgiveness, it doesn't make you weak. It makes you free. Free to live the life that Jesus is calling you to. I'm telling you, if we just get a taste of what Jesus is speaking about to us here, just a taste, if we can get here, then we have a chance to change the entire trajectory of this world and to heal our communities, which need a ton of healing. Will you pray with me, Father? Lord, I'm grateful for your teaching. Lord, as hard as this is, and Lord, this may be the hardest in all of Scripture, this teaching right here, to love our enemies. And so, God, I pray, Lord, for those who are listening who have been hurt, who have been abused, who have, been, who have lost, who have had things stolen, who have had things not repaid. Lord, I pray for them. God, I pray that you would begin to mend their hearts. And, Lord, that they wouldn't sit in bitterness, but, Lord, rather they would let you take care of, of what's going on and the sin of others, Lord, and that you would re they would release, Lord, the burden of anger and malice and unforgiveness in their heart. And Lord, as they do that, Lord, that you would set them free to live this out, that you would set them free, Lord, to love their neighbors and their enemies. God, I pray that we would be a people who would do this, and that as we do this, Lord, the trajectory of this world would change and that communities would heal. Lord, in the things in this world that, that seek to divide, Lord, that we would actually come together in agape. Lord, let our lives be, be an example of radical mercy, both received and given. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.